section one of a far country this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by kate fallis a far country by winston churchill book one chapter one my name is hugh parrott i was a corporation lawyer but by no means a typical one the choice of my profession being merely incidental and due as will be seen to the accident of environment the book i am about to write might aptly be called the autobiography of a romanticist in that sense if in no other i have been a typical american regarding my country as the happy hunting ground of enlightened self-interest as a function of my desires whether or not i have completely got rid of this romantic virus i must leave to those the aim of whose existence is to eradicate it from our literature and our life a somewhat augean task i have been impelled therefore to make an attempt at setting forth with what frankness and sincerity i may with those powers of selection of which i am capable the life i have lived in this modern america the passions i have known the evils i have done i endeavour to write a biography of the inner life but in order to do this i shall have to relate those causal experiences of the outer existence that take place in the world of space and time in the four walls of the home in the school and university in the noisy streets in the realm of business and politics i shall try to set down impartially the motives that have impelled my actions to reveal in some degree the amazing mixture of good and evil which has made me what i am to-day to avoid the tricks of memory and resist the inherent desire to present myself other and better than i am your american romanticist is a sentimental spoiled child who believes in miracles whose needs are mostly baubles whose desires are dreams expediency is his motto innocent of a knowledge of the principles of the universe he lives in a state of ceaseless activity admitting no limitations impatient of all restrictions what he wants he wants very badly indeed this wanting things was the cornerstone of my character and i believe that the science of the future will bear me out when i say that it might have been differently built upon certain it is that the system of education in vogue in the seventies and eighties never contemplated the search for natural cornerstones at all events when i look back upon the boy i was i see the beginnings of a real person who fades little by little as manhood arrives and advances until suddenly i am aware that a stranger has taken his place 
i lived in a city which is now some twelve hours distant from the atlantic seaboard a very different city too it was in my youth in my grandfather's day and my father's even in my own boyhood from what it has since become in this most material of ages there is a book of my photographs preserved by my mother which i have been looking over lately first is presented a plump child of two gazing in smiling trustfulness upon a world of sunshine later on a lean boy in plaited kilts whose wavy chestnut-brown hair has been most carefully parted on the side by nora his nurse the face is still childish then appears a youth of fourteen or thereabout in long trousers and the queerest of short jackets standing beside a marble table against a classic background he is smiling still in undiminished hope and trust despite increasing vexations and crossings meaningless lessons which had to be learned disciplines to rack an inspiring soul and long uncomfortable hours in the stiff pew of the first presbyterian church associated with this torture is a peculiar sunday smell and the faint rustling of silk dresses i can see the stern black figure of dr pound who made interminable statements to the lord o oh lord i can hear him say thou knowest these pictures though yellowed and faded suggest vividly the being i once was the feelings that possessed and animated me love for my playmates vague impulses struggling for expression in a world forever thwarting them i recall too innocent dreams of a future unidentified dreams from which i emerged vibrating with an energy that was lost for lack of a definite objective yet it was constantly being renewed i often wonder what i might have become if it could have been harnessed directed speculations are vain calvinism though it had begun to make compromises was still a force in those days inimical to spontaneity and human instincts and when i think of calvinism i see not dr pound who preached it but my father who practised and embodied it i loved him but he made of righteousness a stern and terrible thing implying not joy but punishment the suppression rather than the expansion of aspirations his religion seemed woven all of austerity contained no shining threads to catch my eye dreams to him were matters for suspicion and distrust i sometimes ask myself as i gaze upon his portrait now the duplicate of the one painted for the bar association whether he ever could have felt the secret hot thrills i knew and did not identify with religion his religion was real to him though he failed utterly to make it comprehensible to me the apparent calmness evenness of his life awed me a successful lawyer a respected and trusted citizen was he lacking somewhat in virility vitality i cannot judge him even to-day i never knew him 
there were times in my youth when the curtain of his unfamiliar spirit was withdrawn a little and once after i had passed the crisis of some childhood disease i awoke to find him bending over my bed with a tender expression that surprised and puzzled me he was well educated and from his portrait a shrewd observer might divine in him a genteel taste for literature the fine features bear witness to the influence of an american environment yet suggest the intellectual englishman of matthew arnold's time the face is distinguished ascetic the chestnut hair lighter and thinner than my own the side whiskers are not too obtrusive the eyes blue-gray there is a large black cravat crossed and held by a cameo pin and the coat has odd narrow lapels his habits of mind were english although he harmonized well enough with the manners and traditions of a city whose inheritance was scotch-irish and he invariably drank tea for breakfast one of my earliest recollections is of the silver breakfast service and egg cups which my great-grandfather brought with him from sheffield to philadelphia shortly after the revolution his son dr hugh moreton parrot after whom i was named was the best-known physician of the city in the decorous second bank days my mother was sarah breck hers was my scotch-irish side old benjamin breck her grandfather undaunted by sea or wilderness had come straight from belfast to the little log settlement by the great river that mirrored then the mantle of primeval forest on the hills so much for chance he kept a store with a side porch and square-paned windows where hams and sides of bacon and sugar loaves in blue glazed paper hung beside ploughs and calico prints barrels of flour of molasses and rum all of which had been somehow marvellously transported over the passes of those forbidding mountains passes we blithely thread to-day in dining cars and compartment sleepers behind the store were moored the barges that floated down on the swift current to the ohio carrying goods to even remoter settlements in the western wilderness benjamin in addition to his emigrant's leather box brought with him some of that pigment that was to dye the locality for generations a deep blue i refer of course to his presbyterianism and in order the better to ensure to his progeny the fastness of this dye he married the granddaughter of a famous divine celebrated in the annals of new england no doubt with some injustice as a staunch advocate on the doctrine of infant damnation my cousin robert breck had old benjamin's portrait which has since gone to the kinleys heaven knows who painted it though no great art were needed to suggest on canvas the tough fabric of that sitter who was more irish than scotch the heavy stick he holds might with a slight stretch of the imagination be a black thorn his head looks capable of withstanding many blows his hand of giving many
and as i gazed the other day at this picture hanging in the shabby suburban parlour i could only contrast him with his anaemic descendants who possessed the likeness between the children of poor mary kinley cousin robert's daughter and the hardy stock of the old country there is a gap indeed benjamin breck made the foundation of a fortune it was his son who built on the second bank the wide corniced mansion in which to house comfortably his eight children there two tiers above the river lived my paternal grandfather dr parrott the breck's physician and friend the durrett's and the hambletons ironmasters the hollisters sherwins the mcelarys and ewanses breck connections the willets and ogilvies in short every one of importance in the days between the thirties and the civil war theirs were generous houses surrounded by shade trees with glorious backyards i have been told where apricots and pears and peaches and even nectarines grew the business of brecken company wholesale grocers descended to my mother's first cousin robert breck who lived at claremore very sound of that word once sufficed to give me a shiver of delight but the claremore i knew has disappeared as completely as atlantis and the place is now a suburb a hateful word cut up into building lots and connected with boyne street and the business section of the city by trolley lines then it was the country and fairly saturated with romance cousin robert when he came into town to spend his days at the store brought with him some of this romance i had almost said of this aroma he was no suburbanite but rural to the backbone professing a most proper contempt for dwellers in towns every summer day that dawned held claremore as a possibility and such was my capacity for joy that my appetite would depart completely when i heard my mother say questioningly and with proper wifely respect if you're really going off on a business trip for a day or two mr parrott she generally addressed my father thus formally i think i'll go to robert's and take you shall i tell nora to pack mother i would exclaim starting up we'll see what your father thinks my dear remain at the table until you are excused hugh he would say released at length i would rush to nora who always rejoiced with me and then to the wire fence which marked the boundary of the peters domain next door eager with the refreshing lack of consideration characteristic of youth to announce to the peterses who were to remain at home the news of my good fortune there would be tom and alfred and russell and julia and little myra with her grass-stained knees faring forth to seek the adventures of a new day in the shady western yard myra was too young not to look wistful at my news but the others pretended indifference seeking to lessen my triumph and it was julia who invariably retorted we can go out to uncle jake's farm whenever we want to can't we tom 
no journey ever taken since has equalled in ecstasy that leisurely trip of thirteen miles in the narrow-gauge railroad that wound through hot fields of nodding corn tassels and between delicious acrid-smelling woods to claremore no silent palace sleeping in the sun no edifice decreed by kubla khan could have worn more glamour than the house of cousin robert breck it stood half a mile from the drowsy village deep in its own grounds amidst lawns splashed with shadows with gravel paths edged in barbarous fashion if you please with shells there were flower beds of equally barbarous design and two iron deer which like the figures on keats grecian urn were ever ready poised to flee and yet never fled for cousin robert was rich as riches went in those days not only rich but comfortable stretching behind the house were sweet meadows of hay and red clover basking in the heat orchards where the cows cropped beneath the trees arbors where purple clusters of concords hung beneath warm leaves there were woods beyond into which under the guidance of willie breck i made adventurous excursions and in the autumn gathered hickories and walnuts the house was a rambling wooden mansion painted grey with red scroll-work on its porches and horsehair furniture inside oh the smell of its darkened interior on a midsummer day like the flavour of that choicest of tropical fruits the mango steen it baffles analysis and the nearest i can come to it is a mixture of matting and corn-bread with another element too subtle to define the hospitality of that house one would have thought we had arrived my mother and i from the ends of the earth such was the welcome we got from cousin jenny cousin robert's wife from mary and helen with the flaxen pigtails from willie whom i recall as permanently without shoes or stockings met and embraced by cousin jenny at the station and driven to the house in the squeaky surrey the moment we arrived she and my mother would put on the dressing sacks i associated with hot weather and sit sewing all day long in rocking chairs at the coolest end of the piazza the women of that day scorned lying down except at night and as evening came on they donned starched dresses i recall in particular one my mother wore with little vertical stripes of black and white and a full skirt and how they talked from the beginning of the visit until the end i have often since wondered where the topics came from it was not until nearly seven o'clock that the train arrived which brought home my cousin robert he was a big man his features and even his ample moustache gave a disconcerting impression of rugged integrity and i remember him chiefly in an alpaca or seersucker coat though much less formal more democratic in a word than my father i stood in awe of him for a different reason and this i know now was because he possessed the penetration to discern the flaws in my youthful character flaws that persisted in manhood none so quick as cousin robert to detect deceptions which were hidden from my mother 
his hobby was carpentering and he had a little shop beside the stable filled with shining tools which willie and i in spite of their attractions were forbidden to touch willie by dire experience had learned to keep the law but on one occasion i stole in alone and promptly cut my finger with a chisel my mother and cousin jenny accepted the fiction that the injury had been done with the flint arrowhead that willie had given me but when cousin robert came home and saw my bound hand and heard the story he gave me a certain look which sticks in my mind wonderful people those indians were he observed they could make arrowheads as sharp as chisels i was most uncomfortable he had a strong voice and spoke with a rising inflection and a marked accent that still remains peculiar to our locality although it was much modified in my mother and not at all noticeable in my father with an odd nasal alteration of the burr our scottish-irish ancestors had brought with them across the seas for instance he always called my father mr Pararet he had an admiration and respect for him that seemed to forbid the informality of matthew it was shared by others of my father's friends and relations sarah cousin robert would say to my mother you're coddling that boy you ought to lamb him oftener hand him over to me for a couple of months i'll put him through his paces so you're going to send him to college are you he's too good for old benjamin's grocery business he was very fond of my mother though he lectured her soundly for her weakness in indulging me i can see him as he sat at the head of the supper-table carving liberal helpings which mary and helen and willie devoured with country appetites watching our plates what's the matter hugh you haven't eaten all your lamb he doesn't like fat robert my mother explained i'd teach him to like it if he were my boy well robert he isn't your boy cousin jenny would remind him his bark was worse than his bite like many kind people he made use of brusqueness to hide an inner tenderness and on the train he was hail fellow well met with every tom dick and harry that commuted although the word was not invented in those days and the conductor and brakeman too but he had his standards and held to them mine was not a questioning childhood and i was willing to accept the scheme of things as presented to me entire in my tenderer years when i had broken one of the commandments on my father's tablet there were more than ten and had on his homecoming been sent to bed my mother would come softly upstairs after supper with a book in her hand a book of selected bible stories on which dr pound had set the seal of his approval with a glazed picture cover representing daniel in the lion's den and an angel standing beside him on the somewhat specious plea that holy writ might have a chastening effect she was permitted to minister to me in my shame the amazing adventure of shadrach meshach and abednego particularly appealed to an imagination needing little stimulation it never occurred to me to doubt that these gentlemen had triumphed over caloric laws 
but out of my window at the back of the second story i often saw a sudden crimson glow in the sky to the southward as though that part of the city had caught fire there were the big steelworks my mother told me belonging to mr durrett and mr hambleton the father of ralph hambleton and the grandfather of hambleton durrett my schoolmates at miss caroline's i invariably connected the glow not with hambleton and ralph but with shadrach meshach and abednego later on when my father took me to the steelworks and i beheld with awe a huge pot filled with molten metal that ran out of it like water i asked him if i leaped into that stream could god save me he was shocked miracles he told me didn't happen any more when did they stop i demanded about two thousand years ago my son he replied gravely then said i no matter how much i believed in god he wouldn't save me if i jumped into the big kettle for his sake for this i was properly rebuked and silenced my boyhood was filled with obsessing desires if god for example had cast down out of his abundant store manna and quail in the desert why couldn't he fling me a little pocket-money a paltry quarter of a dollar let us say which to me represented wealth to avoid the reproach of the pharisees i went into the closet of my bedchamber to pray requesting that the quarter should be dropped on the north side of lime street between stamford and tryon in short as conveniently near home as possible then i issued forth not feeling overconfident but hoping tom peters leaning over the ornamental cast-iron fence which separated his front yard from the street presently spied me scanning the sidewalk what are you looking for hugh he demanded with interest oh something i dropped i answered uneasily what naturally i refused to tell it was a broiling midsummer day julia and russell who had been warned to stay in the shade but who were engaged in the experiment of throwing the yellow cat from the top of the lattice fence to see if she would alight on her feet were presently attracted and joined in the search the mystery which i threw around it added to its interest and i was not inconsiderably annoyed suppose one of them were to find the quarter which god had intended for me would that be justice it's nothing i said and pretended to abandon the quest to be renewed later but this ruse failed they continued obstinately to search and after a few minutes tom with a shout picked out of a hot crevice between the bricks a nickel it's mine i cried fiercely did you lose it demanded julia the canny one as tom was about to give it up my lying was generally reserved for my elders no i said hesitatingly but it's mine all the same it was sent to me sent to you they exclaimed in a chorus of protest and derision and how indeed was i to make good my claim 
the peterses when assembled were a clan led by julia and in matters of controversy moved as one how was i to tell them that in answer to my prayers for twenty-five cents god had deemed five all that was good for me some somebody dropped it there for me who demanded the course say that's a good one tears suddenly blinded me overcome by chagrin i turned and flew into the house and upstairs into my room locking the door behind me an interval ensued during which i nursed my sense of wrong and it pleased me to think that the money would bring a curse on the peters family at length there came a knock on the door and a voice calling my name hugh hugh it was tom hughie won't you let me in i want to give you the nickel keep it i shouted back you found it another interval and then more knocking open up he said coaxingly i i want to talk to you i relented and let him in he pressed the coin into my hand i refused he pleaded you found it i said it's yours but but you were looking for it that makes no difference i declared magnanimously curiosity overcame him say hughie if you didn't drop it who on earth did nobody on earth i replied cryptically naturally i declined to reveal the secret nor was this by any means the only secret i held over the peters family who never quite knew what to make of me they were not troubled with imaginations julia was a little older than tom and had a sharp tongue but over him i exercised a distinct fascination and i knew it literal himself good-natured and warm-hearted the gift i had of tinging life with romance to put the thing optimistically of creating kingdoms out of backyards at which julia and russell sniffed held his allegiance firm end of section one